So we are in um, 1 John chapter 2, and we will be looking at a massively long section of text today, verses 12 through 14. That's dozens and dozens of words. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Strange section, isn't it? It doesn't fit easily into the flow. John is giving us encouragements, heavy, difficult, seemingly difficult encouragements. Walk in the light. Don't sin. Be attentive to a lifestyle of repentance. Obey God's commandments. Love one another as Christ loves you. He's going to go on to do not love the world, warning against Antichrist. But all of a sudden, he takes this brief pause. And the reason is, John was getting old. And when you get old, your mind wanders, and you just sort of ramble. And so John just rambled, right? This is the word of God. John is not rambling. What is this text? What's it doing here? It, it doesn't seem to fit if you really read it too quickly. But if we sit down and, and really think, John is kind of laying it on heavy. John's not giving us, let me present to you some optional things you might do if you'd like to have a little bit more joy in your life. Don't worry about it. You're saved by grace. It's just a little extra if you like. It's not what he's saying. John is also not saying, if you don't do this perfectly all the time, you're probably not saved, so get your act together. That's not what John is saying either. Well, what is John saying? He's saying... This is how saved people live. These are not unreachable, unattainable aspirations. This is the basics of how a truly saved person lives. And the more robustly we live in light of this, the more joy we will have, which is what, in fact, God saved us to. So walk in the light. Don't sin. Be attentive to a lifestyle of repentance. Obey God's commandments. Which ones? All of them. And love one another as Jesus loved you. Do you feel the weight of that? Like the the, the impossibility on your own, the overwhelming sense of, I don't even know how I can do this in Christ. And it's just going to get worse. Don't love the world. Does anyone love the world? Well, we all do to an extent. Do we love one another as Jesus loves us? I mean, I do, but you all don't. (laughs) Why are you laughing at me? (laughs) Well, John John says here, and and this interlude is a breath of fresh air. Sean O'Donnell calls it consoling or comforting preaching. So while John is presenting these, these necessary foundational truths of what it looks like to live as a child of God. Now he reminds us of the foundation of who we are and how we are so, so we can live as God calls us to. I'm writing to you little children 
so that because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil. And I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. This is who we are. Now, now, let me show you the difference between a deep theological conversation and theological nonsense. Are you ready? Who are the little children? Who are the fathers and who are the young men? So with the, the little children, put your hands up. So good, we have no little children. We'll skip that. Oh, we got two in the back. Any young men? Okay, any fathers? Well, what, what, what's what? Who's who? Read commentators all the way back from Augustine to, to present day, and you could read pages and pages of conversation and discussion about who's who and what's what and John's talking about. So the little children are baby believers. The young men are those who are maturing in their faith, growing. The fathers are those who are truly resting in Christ. Sounds good. There's just no biblical basis in John for that. Well, the children are all Christians, and there are two types of Christians, young men and fathers, and it deals with where you are maturing in Christ. There's just no basis in the text for that. Here's who the children are, all of us. The young men, all of us. The fathers, all of us. Why is John doing this? It's a rhetorical technique to capture your attention and listen to what he's saying. We'll start with comfort, little children. Our sins are forgiven and God is our Father. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'll ask an easier question. Are there any saved people here? Just a couple of us. We're... How confident are you that your sins are forgiven? I like this answer up here. Completely, totally, unconditionally, unquestionably, all of my sins are forgiven. Can you say that with boldness as a Christian? Because if you can't, you're actually calling God a liar. You, you don't understand. It's not pompous and audacious to say, I know with absolute certainty all of my sins are forgiven. Well, there's a how you know that. That's going to be key because I'm a good person. No, 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 not so fast. But if we read John the wrong way, we're, we're going to despair. I'm a hot mess. I sin all the time. I don't love as Christ loves. I, I don't obey as God calls me to obey. I, I'm a mess. He's reminding us, you are a mess. But your sins are forgiven. And how do I know my sins are forgiven? Well, because in 1 John 2, didn't it tell us Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? Isaiah 53, 5, isn't Jesus pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity? By his wounds we are healed. Weren't our iniquities laid on him? Psalm 103, though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Well, God says Jesus atoned for all of our sin, past, present, and future for those of us who are in him. So how do I know? Because God tells me it's so, and it's for his name's sake. Where do you beat yourself up over sins you've committed? Anybody ever do that? Why would you do that? My, my little children, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Beating yourself up over sins you've committed that Christ has covered is in fact sinning against God. Stop! Jesus dealt with that. 
you fell short. Right, that's why he came. Stop beating yourself up. Your sins are forgiven. Well, where, where do you neglect the forgiveness you've received? Where, where do you go on doing what you want, forgetting what Christ calls you to? Don't you understand why Jesus came? To forgive your sin. Your sins are forgiven, but don't neglect the atoning work of Christ. Little children, our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Start there. I'm writing, well, let's go down to the bottom of 13. I write to you, children, because you know who? The Father. Not know about, you know. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, you know all those prayers where God tells us to pray to him as Father? The Jews come to Mount Sinai and they shout in unison, Father on high, right? Or, or, or when, when Moses comes to the burning bush, he prays, Father, or he says to God, Whom shall I say sent me? Tell them your Father sent, right? Where, there's fatherly pointers, but you know how audacious it was that Jesus said, When you pray, pray like this, our Father. Or when Jesus talks about going to our Father, God's fatherliness towards us. When I came out of college, I applied for a job at my father-in-law's recommendation. He was friends with the CEO of a Fortune 50 company named Bob Walter. And I sent a letter, Dear Mr. Walter, my father-in-law Bruce Cameron suggested I contact you. Two days later, I had a job. I had a connection with the CEO. Showed up at work a couple weeks later, a red Porsche 911 Carrera pulls in the lot, vanity plate, hot tamale, that was Mr. Walter's car. Walking in with my friend Jeff, the rumble, gets out of the car, looks at me and goes, hey John, how are you? Hey Mr. Walter, good to see you. Jeff looks at me and goes, what's the deal with that? Well, I had access through my father-in-law, but see, Bob Walter had a son my age too, came to work for the company named Matt. Matt didn't send a letter to his dad. Matt didn't get the same sort of job I got. Matt still works there and does pretty well for himself because Matt had a dad. Blow that out of the, 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 the proportions that we can limit it to. Jesus doesn't give us a name on a referral letter to the Father to answer our prayers. He makes us sons of God. We are sons of God. God is our Father. My little children, your sins are forgiven and God is your Father. Where do you forget that? Where do you forget the fatherliness of God? God is not like your father. God is a perfect Father. So feel the weight of what John's saying, but start on the foundation of your sins are forgiven and God is your father and you will forget those things and need to be reminded of them again and again and again. Why do you obey God? It's really a simple question that's hard to answer. Why do you obey God? Well, because we have to. Yeah, it's his commandment. Kind of? But wouldn't you want to obey God because his commandments are laid before us so we can enjoy intimate fellowship with him as a father? 
I obey God because I want to enjoy God who is my father and loves me. There's your robust biblical answer. Not because he's going to hurt me, because he's in charge, because he demands. No! My little children, I'm writing these things because your, your sins are forgiven and God is your father. Later on, his commandments are not burdensome. They should be a joy and a delight to the heart because they lead us into greater fellowship with him. I obey rightly for God's glory and my joy. That's why. He's my father. Do you know how easy it is to forget that? I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, repeats that in verse 14. What does that mean? What's your greatest desire in life? You got it. Don't ruin, don't ruin it for him. To walk with God in the fullness of sense and to enjoy intimate fellowship of one you know well. But functionally, guys, let's be honest, besides me and Jerry who are fully sanctified, don't say it out loud. What's your greatest desire in life? If you think about it and wrestle with it, it's something else or something alongside. For my kids to be happy, to be successful, to be loved, to be rich, to be healthy, to be relaxed, to be... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Are you saying if I obey God, I'm going to be rich? I actually am. But in due time. I'm not saying in, in this life. Are you saying that if I trust God, I'll be healed totally physically? I am. I am. Don't miss it because he says it. But just in due time, you'll have a resurrection body. I'm not promising you healing in this life. I'm promising you perfection before God and perfection with God in due time. Could he heal you in this life? Sure. Could he make you rich in this life? Sure. If he doesn't, why doesn't he? Because it's not best. But in order to know that, you have to know him as a good father who loves you perfectly. What is our only hope in life and death? Here's a kicker. I made this comment at the, the very beginning about these strange conversations. Grab a catechism like the Heidelberg and Westminster and chew on it. It will answer every foundational question you'll flounder with in life and your kids or your grandkids for generations to come will flounder with. Every child grows up with a need to know who they are. Who am I? Parents usually tell them, you are wonderful. You are smart. You are strong. You are handsome. But what if you're ugly, dumb, and average? Right? You guys know how a bell curve works? You, you know how many people are on that far side of the bell curve in the above average intelligence section? It ain't all of you. Do you know, to an extent, pretty is subjective. Though Ricky tried to drive home the point last Sunday that there, there is ugly out there, right? <laughs> you know, you can be dumb ugly and have no talents and still be precious in the sight of God. What is our only hope in life and death that I'm pretty and smart and rich? I hope not. That I am not my own, but belong to God. See the difference? The world may celebrate pretty and smart and strong, but God celebrates all of his children whom he created that he delights in. 
Your identity is not found in things you can do or things you want. It's found in who God made you to be. A creature who is dependent upon him and made to be able to live with him through Christ. I am not my own, but belong to God. There is success. There is joy. And not only do I belong to God, I belong to God as his child, forgiven and loved. If that don't get you through the week, I don't know what will. What more do you need? What, if we have Christ, what more do we need? Well, we need one another to remind us of who we are in Christ and who Christ is, but John's not done. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. So John gives us comfort, and then he goes to encouragement. The Bobby Boucher, who Renee knows very well now. You can do it! That's not Bobby's line, that's a line said to Bobby. You are strong. Growing up, I'd ruin my kids because everything was about how strong you are. And, and I, don't, I do have kids on that side of the bell curve, right? Let's just be honest. And so I remember a proud moment as a papa, as Cameron came home from, from preschool, I don't even know if he remembers this, walks into the house and goes, I'm pretty sure I boomed down everybody in the class. I was like, you could boom down everybody in the class? Mm-hmm. He's, like, he's like the alpha dog in the preschool. I could beat up all the kids. And then he's contemplating, can you overpower the teacher? And I'm starting to contemplate, what have I done to this child? Like, why is he analyzing the room as a four-year-old to... St- But we should do that spiritually. I can boom down all of the schemes of the devil. I can boom down captivity to sin. I can boom down obstacles that stand in my way because I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. You can do it. You are strong. That's what he says to the young men who are believers, who are all of us. But how so? Well, you can do it. He will help. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ephesians 6.10, we walk in the strength of his might. Do you ever feel like there are things God calls you to that you can't do? If not, you haven't really thought about what God calls you to. Hang around with me for a couple days and then love me like Jesus loved you. Only Jim got that joke, right? It's not going to be easy. You can go, I can't do this. You can do it. Try, try to obey God's commandments when the world offers you other things. Try to trust in the wisdom of God over your own wisdom. You, I, I, I can't do it. No, you can do it. How? Because you are strong. Well, well where do we forget the strength and capability we have in Christ. On the other side, where do we forget and think that we are stronger than we are on our own and wiser than we really are? This scripture tells us, as I said earlier, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pursue his kingdom, not your own. How do you know when you're pursuing your kingdom, not God's kingdom? you run through life at 100 miles an hour, do you ever really know? I'm going to marry that person. I have this number of kids. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to make this money. I'm going to retire this place. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, you just sit down and you're 80 years old. 
and someone says to you, what's it like to joyfully walk in the will of the Lord? And you say, you ever meet a, well, we'll use Samson. Remember Samson in the book of Judges? You ever look at a children's Bible? Big dude, right? He was the first man to use anabolic steroids. That's why his hair fell out. But anyway, when you picture Samson, don't you picture a big guy? Right? I mean, nice ripping forearms, barrel chested, legs like Dylan and I have just tearing through the pants. Tree, Dylan and I are the, the tree trunk brothers, right? You want to know what he really looked like? Not muscular and big. Why do I say that? Because people ask, how is he so strong? Well, duh, if he weighed 380 pounds ripping through his toga, it wouldn't be a tough question. Look at his arms. He had supernatural strength. It was part of, part of this, this vow that he made to God and how God was going to display his glory. Samson looked rather average, but he had a strength no one could understand where it came from. Listen now. How much more so us as believers? But how often do we walk in such a way that we look at one another and go, how'd you do that? Samson, how'd you kill all them Philistines? How'd you knock down those pillars? How'd you use a jawbone like that? Brothers, sisters, how did you overcome the evil one? How did you forgive? How did you love? How did you trust God? Shouldn't it be more so than Samson? Well, what happens is we forget that when John is telling us to walk in the light, he means walk in the light. Not just stick a foot in the light every once in a while, walk in the light. Walk, in fact, as Jesus walked is what he says. To love one another as Jesus loved us. Anyone ever offend you in the church? I don't want specific examples because my feelings will be hurt. Anyway, anyone other than me will take examples now. Has anyone ever offended you in the church? If not, you really need to live relationally with one another more. What do you do when someone offends you? Well, let me ask differently. Biblically, what should you do when someone offends you? Well, don't, well you, if you can just forgive, forgive. But if there's an issue to be addressed, bring up the issue. Isn't that kind of risky? Yeah, you ever, Jerry offended me because he was talking bad about my goats. And so I'm just going to... I'm, I was sharing. Well, I'm more concerned about the dogs with you, let's be honest. <laughs> so I'm just going to let it stew inside. Why, why is he talking bad about my goats? What kind of man? I thought he was a nice man who loved Jesus. He's just bad-mouthing my goats to other people in the church. Well, fine. If he's going to bad-mouth my goats, I'm not even going to talk to him. Hi, Jerry. That's the best he's getting out of me. I don't care. That's what we do. We, we put on the facade. I'm using a silly illustration, but what would happen if I came to him and said, hey, you've really, you've really hurt me. You've, you've offended me. And not only bad about my goats, you're, you're talking about my goats to other people and making them look bad to other people. Why? Why? Well, he might say, what kind of sick fool are you so concerned about your goats? Or he might say, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to. And, and you have restoration and reconciliation. We can obviously do this in appropriate terms on being vague in general. Well, how do you actually work up the muster to seek to reconcile with someone who sinned against you and have the ability to forgive someone or be forgiven by someone? Well, 
you can do it. You are strong, but you got to trust God and walk in his will. How do you steward your time as God calls you to? Don't, don't you all have the experience of more, more things to do than time allows? Well, what do you do with that? Well, how do you trust God's provision of time to accomplish God's given desires? Guys, our goal, we'll get to this a little later on, should be to live in the strength of God's might according to the word of God in light of the fatherliness of God who's forgiven us through Christ. You can do it, not on your own. Don't try to make a name for yourself. Who are you? I'm a child of God. You know, would you be more, listen to this, and I'll move on. Would you be more impressed to know, let's use this, this work illustration, that my, if it was my dad, that my dad is the CEO of a company with revenue of $156 billion, owns three homes and a private island, or would you be more impressed to know that my father is God himself? Yeah, we want to say God himself, but ain't God flying you on private aviation to an island, is he? God, God ain't giving you the hot tamale too, and that was his son's license plate, right? God, God isn't giving you all of these things that, that are appealing to the flesh, and they're not evil, but which would impress you more? I, I wonder what would happen if, pick your favorite celebrity, walked into the church on a Sunday at the same time Jesus walked in who you know isn't a six-foot white dude from Chester County. I'm just saying, when you meet him, just so you're not surprised. Who would you be drawn to greet and engage with? Right? I don't even know. Who, celebrities all kind of went downhill over the past couple years. But, like, go back 20 years and, like, what if Mr. T walked in? I guess it'd be a Barack. Ah, Peter the Fool. Oh, my gosh, Mr. T's at church. This is so exciting. Why? Why, why are we not enthralled with the fact that God who is, who made all things, who sustains all things, who owns all things, has saved us to himself and made us his children? You won the lottery, you know that? The cosmic lottery. Your daddy is God, and not only is that, God dwells in you. You are strong. You are loved. You are forgiven. And look at where he ends this. Not only in the comfort, not only in the motivation, but look at the encouragement to press on to what John calls us to. God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Remember John 15? Remember John 17? What, what does it mean that... The, the word of God abides in you. Does it mean you get like a tattoo of scripture? Jesus is the word. Well, here it's tricky, right? This is the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God. So that means that I'm holding Jesus. No, 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 don't do it. It means that the God who created all things dwells in us. And he sanctifies us by his very word, which he's entrusted to us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Because it is a light to our path and a lamp for our feet. I think I flipped those there. We are sanctified, John 17, by his word, Colossians 3.16. God guides us by his word, but it is not just his word. It is God himself by his spirit dwelling in us to empower us and empower his word to sanctify us. 
How often do we neglect Scripture? Now, what should motivate us to read Scripture, to meditate on Scripture, to memorize Scripture? What are you going to get out of it? And this is Sunday school today. This is what we're going to dig into today. Why do you want to read this? Why do I have to read it? I got Google. What, 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 I asked Pastor John, well, how do you know I'm not making up some nonsense? What do you find out? In like 40 years, I was like a corrupt cult leader, and you all fell for it. Now you're all going to start, wait, well, you figure it out. I don't know. Get a Bible, read it. This is the, the word of the living God so that we might know him and enjoy him and walk with him as he sanctifies us by this word and come to see that the God who gave us his word dwells in us. He's a very present help, not only in times of trouble, but at all times. We abide in God and God abides in us. And Derek Jeter has a line where he says, I don't remember exactly how, you know who Derek Jeter is? I mean, we should. He plays for the greatest baseball team in the history of the world. Not on that sinful team from a little further north. He says he's, he's an extremely loyal person, but loyalty in only one direction is stupidity. That's Derek Jeter's quote. That's not Jesus' quote. Jesus spins it a little bit differently. Jesus is the most loyal person you will ever know. But for him, loyalty in one direction is not stupidity. It's called grace. No matter how well you abide in God as a Christian, God will robustly always abide in you. Now, the degree to which you abide in God is the degree to which you will enjoy the relationship you have with Jesus. Now, that is put on display in the church. In a sense, one directional loyalty in a church is stupidity. But as we live with multi-directional loyalty in a church, what we're doing is displaying in one sense, the triune uh, intimacy and, and relationality, but more so the relationship we have with Jesus and Jesus has with us. It's a signpost to that. But Jesus' loyalty to us is not conditional upon our loyalty to him. In fact, it is his loyalty to us that enables us in any way to abide in him. Remember, Peter, do you even love me? Do you even kind of like me as a brother? The response should be, no, but Jesus, you love me. It's that old, old song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Enamor yourself with the love of Jesus for you, and because he first loved you, you will love him. You will abide in him. You will walk with him. And it is through his word that we are able to know him and hear from him and be comforted by him and be encouraged by him and comfort and encourage one another. If you just take a Bible by yourself to the woods, you will not live in robust intimacy with Jesus. Sorry. Because that's not the way the Holy Spirit primarily works. We'll pivot to that in a moment as we look at communion. But guys, you're not captive to sin. You're not under the dominion of the evil one. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and the moment you come to faith in Christ, you have power over those things too. Yes, you will fail, but your sins are forgiven. Where does the power come from? From your new birth with a new father through Jesus. My little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Young men, you have overcome the evil one. Children, you know the Father. Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Young men, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil 
1. It's kind of like a rough swim lesson, 1 John is. Go, go. You ever do a swim test as a little kid? Or oh, maybe we had a little weird. I didn't like the water. I had a near drowning experience. Next time you see my mom at church, ask her to tell you about it. She'll look at you like this. I fell in a pool. It's my first memory. I fell in a pool. I was like a year and a half old. My first memory is I could see light from under the pool. It may have been a little splash pool. I don't know. But in my head, I'm 25 feet down. And I was there for probably like four minutes. The angels were sustaining me. You know, they were like blowing bubbles and playing harps. And God said, I am preserving you for you are an elect child, none yet saved. And I'm like, blah, 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 blah. and my mom pulled me out. And then I did that throwing up water thing. I'm convinced that you see in the movies, you know, blah, blah. and I came back to life. And why am I telling this story? I don't even know where I'm going with it. Listen, the, the, where was I going with this story? Wow, I really, this is it. I finally lost one. It'll come back to me in a minute. Wow, that's creepy. I was brought back to life. I was in the pool. Woo! Mark that on the recording. We're going to edit that thing right out. My point, my point is this. Wow, that's really disturbing. I got to listen to this and land this maybe next week. How did I go to swimming in a pool and drowning? Swim lesson. Swim Yes, thank you. Of course, Derek paying attention, Dylan thinking about grilling. Do you want to be a Derek or do you want to be a Dylan? <laughs> so sometimes, so I couldn't swim later in life. I was terrified of the water. I finally went to camp and I had to learn how to swim. And to get in the deep water with all the normal kids who were like 12 years old, you know, so you're not in little floaties, you had to swim all these lengths in the pool. And I remember just roughing it and just gasping you. You're going, you're like, Ugh! but you can't quit. You're like, Whoa. Then you're like, how far can I go before I pass out? Ugh! And you finally grab the wall and you're like, you made it. Well, that's First John. If you read it right, it's like, walk in the light. Ugh! Love one another as Jesus. Ugh! Do not sin. Ugh! And then John reaches down and he lifts us up out of the water and says, relax. You got to learn how to swim. It's not supposed to be this hard. Relax. Catch your breath. Well, how do we catch our breaths? Your sins are forgiven. God is your father. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. God himself abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. So if you're listening to John the right way, now you, you got water dripping off your head. You're shaking from exhaustion from trying to swim and not drown. You go, and then John will smile next week and go, ready to keep going? And we'll go back in and go, do not love the world. Go through it a few times. I don't swim like that anymore. Thank goodness I don't swim like that anymore. You'll learn to enjoy swimming. I don't mean swimming, I mean walking with God. You'll enjoy living in light of who you are. Little by little, more and more, you will walk in the light. You will love one another as Jesus has loved you. You will flee sin. You will repent when you sin. You will not love the world. How? Because God will cause you to. 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is fully invested and fully committed and fully guarantees not only that you are justified in Christ, but you will be fully sanctified in him, positionally and practically. How? Not by the strength of your might, but by the strength of his might. So maybe at times the Christian life feels like I can't do that again or I'll hyperventilate. But my swimming illustration, it shouldn't. It does because we do it a little bit too much in the flesh. Maybe the Christian life for you feels like you don't want to jump in the water because you're kind of scared of it, so you sit on the side. Hop in. You can do it. Well, no, I can't, Pastor. You don't understand. I can't spiritually swim. Well, no, you can. You don't understand the strength that God has for you. So take this away. Here's your go and do list. I'll make it simple. Remember what's done. Children dearly loved by God, forgiven, empowered, and motivated by the love of God to have the joy God intends in intimacy with him. There's your go away. Remember who you are. You want something else to do this week if that's not enough? Remind someone else of who they are in Christ. You want one more thing? Remember who you are again. That's the foundation we work on. It's not our doing that we should be primarily after. It's resting in the done of Christ. Well, Pastor, are you saying that there's nothing for us to do? Uh, no, I don't know if you were here for the first part of 1 John. There's a lot of doing. But be doing your doing in light of what's done as you live as a child who God made a son. Let's close today as we pivot to take the Lord's Supper together. And, and let me ask you a question. What are we doing? First of the month, come on up, get your stuff. What, what are we doing? It, you, you do it all the time. It becomes routine. Remembering our Lord's sacrificial work, right? right? Is death, burial, resurrection. resurrection. We can even see his ascension in it. Where we're being strengthened and nourished by the very Spirit of God. We are proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection until he comes. Can I show you something that I was noticing and 1 Corinthians 11. I've seen it before, but for some reason it just struck me uniquely this week. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, you have the, the Lord's Supper section. In the following instructions, I don't commend you because... Anyone have a Bible open in front of them? <clears throat> verse 17. In the following instructions, I don't commend you because when you come together... It is, for, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. 
One goes hungry, another get drunks. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Listen to this. Through the bread and the cup, we see and are reminded of the forgiveness we have received. In the bread and the cup, we see and are reminded of the new family Christ has made us a part of. As we come to the bread and the cup, we see and are reminded of our daily need of nourishment from God. As we look to the bread and the cup, we see and are reminded of the new hearts that we have, which we examine before we come, as we look forward to what what is to come. Too often communion is a a forward-facing, self-focused thing. I don't want you to miss the look around. I kind of wish our architecture was different sometimes. I, I wish we sat circularly. Because this, this is, you, when you all look at me, you can't really look at one another. Communion isn't really just about you and Jesus. It's about us when you come together and Jesus. Do you know why the Lord instructs us to take communion as a body? because of the when you come together. It's a family meal. I can't have a family meal by myself. I can eat by myself. I can do Thanksgiving by myself. But it's not a family meal truly unless the family is gathered. Guys, family. Why family? Who's your father? Why does scripture call us brothers and sisters? Fellowship, love one another. How? As Jesus has loved us. How has Jesus loved us? He laid down his life for us. He lived the perfect life we couldn't. He died the death we deserve. He made us righteous and he set us apart as holy so we could live with him as his people for his glory and the joy he sets before us. So as we come forward, you got to slow down at some point and examine your heart. First, you come forward on the credentials of Christ. You know, in each of these strange conversations, not each, most of them I had this week, 
I would ask a question. One involved a, a parent and her child. And I said, does your child, 13-year-old kid, does your child understand what the gospel is? Well, well, she believes the Bible is the inspired word of God. Okay? So I say to the mother, this dancing thing, a mother who's a professing believer in a church that's not really a church, think large, attractional, seeker-sensitive. Do you understand the gospel? Of course. What is it? Chew on this, guys. Do you understand the gospel? Because if you don't understand the gospel, this table really isn't for you. But if you understand the gospel, what a joy this table becomes. Well, I believe the Bible's inspired by, oh, great. So do the demons, actually. I believe that, that Jesus is God. Okay. Well, what is the gospel? I'm a sinner by birth in Adam. I don't want to live for the glory of God, and I'm happy to use you, not love you. I seek my kingdom. I seek my will, and I seek to use a God I create in my image to do what I want. I may do nice things on the outside, but my heart does not desire the glory of God. And that's horrible. It's sin. And I grieve this, and I don't want to be like this. I want to love people. I want to love God. I want to know God. But I can't come to God on my own, but I recognize the good news of Jesus came to save people just like me. People who look nice on the outside, but inside have pretty corrupted hearts and deceived motives and, and are manipulative. People who don't love God. And not only does he offer me forgiveness, he makes me new and creates in me a new heart and gives me an ability by his power to live for his glory and love him and love one another. And I get to fight to that end because I'm a child of God, forgiven and loved. And I live my life in a floundering attempt to live as God calls me to so I might enjoy him who saved me to himself, by himself, and from his very wrath. This is the gospel separated, reconciled, and living in fellowship with. you. No one is too bad they can't be forgiven, and no one is too good that they don't need him. It's not about trusting in God and having God in your heart. No, it's about being born anew in Christ. Who am I? A child of God. This is how we become children of God. Let us slow down this morning and see and be reminded, not just go through the motions of come down the middle, go out the end. No! As a child of God, I'm not an only child. I'm loved with the intimacy of an only child, but I'm one of billions. A family with new brothers and new sisters and a new father and a new savior who tells us to do this in remembrance of him. We enjoy communion with God only properly as we enjoy communion with one another in the power of God. So if you understand the gospel, if you have been born anew in Christ through this very gospel, 
Walk in the joy God sets before you amongst his family and yours. As you see and are reminded of the forgiveness you have, as you see and are reminded of the new family Christ has made, as you see and are reminded of your daily need for nourishment from God, as you see and are reminded of the new hearts that we have, as we look forward to what is to come. Because we don't do this forever. We do this until he returns. Let me pray. Father, Father, it just is an audacious way to pray to God, but yet it is a way you tell us too, Lord. Father God, the one through whom all things were made, the fact that you actually hear us as we speak and are attentive to our words should cause us just to flounder in joy. Beyond that, the fact that you love us with a love so broad and deep and high that we will never fully understand it, should cause us not only to delight, but to rest in you. Yet at the same time, God, we are busy-headed, busy-minded, scared, selfless people who always run away from you. Why? Help us. Lord, forgive us, for too often we trust in our own strength. We walk in the wisdom of the world, and we forget the strength we have in you. We forget the love we have from you. We forget the provision that you are to us. Help us. Encourage us, Lord, so that by the power of your Spirit we might delight in you and love you because you first loved us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to love one another in the way that you love us, to remind one another of who we are in Christ, to invite those who do not know you to trust in you and be saved and enjoy fellowship with you amongst your people. Lord, help us to trust in you, realizing that you will always provide for us perfectly. Lord, strengthen us. Lord, help us to focus, as our dear sister Renee reminds us constantly, Help us to delight in you, to keep our eyes stayed upon you. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is commendable, to think about these things. Just to gaze upon you, Lord Jesus, the love you have for us, and who we have become through that love. Little children, young men and fathers, in the sense of forgiven kids with a dad, young men who are able to fight the fight of faith, and fathers in the sense of seeking to rest in intimate fellowship with you. Lord Jesus, why you have made a way for that to be so is beyond our ability to comprehend, yet you do tell us in simple terms we can understand that the reason you did it is because you so loved the world. You chose your people before the foundation of the world to save them from yourself, by yourself, and to yourself. Help us rest in, understand, and walk in this most privileged position you have placed upon us. We are children of God Most High. Thank you, Father. Help us to magnify your name. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen. I invite you.